0: Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for all the blessings that you've given to us. Lord, we had a lot of praises this morning, and we thank you for that. Uh, Lord, this morning, as we open up your word, I pray that you will open up our hearts and open up our minds so that we can hear the message that you have for us. Um, Humble us in your presence, Lord, so that we can learn from you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, so we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts, uh, and this is uh, the sermon series is called "Jesus's Mission Continues." And we're looking at disciple making in the early church, so that we can know what lessons, or we can find lessons for us to learn to apply to our vision of worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning we're in Acts 23. We're going to go 12 to 35, and we're going to see Paul saved from an ambush. But the most important part in that is that we're going to we learn that disciples reflect God's glory. In all circumstances, disciples reflect God's glory. And there are three main points that lead into that. First is that God is all knowing, God is in control, and that charity isn't enough. Doing good things just isn't enough. Now, I was going, I was tempted here to say charity ain't enough, but I figured we have enough teachers in here that I probably wouldn't get away with that. Um, so leading into this, let me give you a little background of what's been going on. So Paul was arrested in Jerusalem under false pretenses. Then, when he was on trial before the Sanhedrin, they broke out in an argument over something that he said. So throughout this passage this morning, Luke, the author, does a really good job of juxtaposing two groups. Uh, these two groups are the Jews and the Roman, uh, the Jews and the Romans. Uh, the Jews have been raised as God's people under the law of Moses and should display that by reflecting God's character. Whereas the Romans are pagan. They're Gentiles who have their own understanding of justice and truth and what is right. And often in the New Testament, it seems to, it seems to be implied that the Roman government is crooked and corrupt. So let's see if the, the two groups in this story match that, those descriptions and those expectations. So we're going to pick up in verse 12. It says, When it was morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink anything until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had formed this plot. These men went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat anything until we have killed Paul. So now you, along with the Sanhedrin, make a request to the commander that he bring him down to you as if you were going to investigate his case more thoroughly. But before he gets near, we are ready to kill him. So again, we see the Jews here. Now, this obviously would not have been all the Jews, but it says that there were 40. So this is a pretty big group. Um, what? Where? I'm sorry. What group would this be, or, or kind of who would they, they align with? Um, they would have probably been under the same beliefs as the Sadducees. You know, if you remember last week, we talked about some of the differences between Sadducees and Pharisees. Um, the Sadducees, one of the things, uh, one of their identifiers as a uh, as a group, was that they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection in the, in the end times. Now, Christianity rests. On the resurrection. But this doctrine does not come only from the New Testament, but there are several Old Testament scriptures that point to that as well. We talked about some of those last week. So the Jews, though, they did not agree on this doctrine. They did not agree on the doctrine of resurrection. Um, As a matter of fact, this is still a point of disagreement in modern Judaism. um, The Orthodox Jews and the Reform Jews disagree on this. Uh, And it would seem that this group, this group of at least 40 of them, sided with the Sadducees because that was what had uh, that was the comment that Paul had made that caused the group to erupt into, into big argument. Um, and so <clears throat> the fact that this group is willing to kill Paul seems to indicate that they were siding with the Sadducees. Now, it says that there were more than 40 of them. So 40, that's a fairly substantial group. A group this size would be very capable of overwhelming Paul and the Roman guards who were... Um, who were charged with transporting him from where he was being held into the, uh, in front of the Sanhedrin, especially with the element of surprise. So if we left all this up to Paul and the Roman guard, they, they probably wouldn't end well for Paul. Um, but there's another detail that Luke, the author, is about to reveal to us. Picking up in verse 16, it says, But the son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. Paul called one of the centurions, and said, Take this young man to the commander, because he has something to report to him. So he took him, brought him to the commander, and said, The prisoner Paul called me and asked me to and asked me to bring this young man to you, because he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand, led him aside, and inquired privately, What is it you have to report to me? So Luke introduces us to a new character here, a new person in this story, <clears throat> and tells us that this is the son of Paul's sister. What else do we know about this guy? So when we meet somebody in the Bible, we want to know as much as we can about them. We want to go back and research and try to figure out, are there any other points in the story that, or or any other points in in other scripture that tell us anything about this person? All that we are told here is that he's the son of Paul's sister. Unfortunately, that raises more questions than it answers. right, first question is, (laughs) wait, Paul had a sister? Right? Are we told anything about this anywhere else in Scripture? Do we know anything else about her? What's her name? Where did she live? Was she a believer too? Well, then we have other questions about the nephew. Right? What was his name? How old was he? Was he a believer? Did he travel with Paul? None of those questions are answered for us anywhere in Scripture that I could find anyway. I couldn't find any answers to any of those questions. This passage is all we are told about Paul's sister and about his nephew. Now, we do get one small detail in here. It says that um, he was a, um, it says later in uh, verse 18 that he was a young man. Again, that's not a lot of detail that we know about him. But kind of the most relevant question to this passage here is, why was he in a position to hear about the plot against Paul's life? Why was he there with these 40 Jews plotting against Paul? Again, we don't know why he's there. We don't know. And so, when we think through and we're looking at um, trying to understand the Bible, we want to know, or we want some system of finding out as much as we can, of learning as much from the Bible as we can, of hearing from God. Now, I've put together um, uh, my Bible study methodology, uh, the CSA. We've talked about that a lot. I've gone through a couple of sermons modeling it. But one of those questions in the CSA is what does this tell us about God's character? All right, first. This tells us that God has given us all that we need in Scripture, not everything that we want. There are a lot of details that are not in Scripture, but we trust God to know that he put everything in there that we need. Right? There are many times in Scripture where we want more details, but God doesn't give them all. What we do have in Scripture is knowledge sufficient for salvation and knowledge sufficient for knowing God's will for our life. We know that God is omniscient. This means that he is all-knowing. There's no truth that God does not know. Then why would he not share that knowledge with us? Well, since God is all-knowing, that also means that he knows what's best for us. And for some reason, he thought it best, or at least unnecessary, for us to know all of these details. We may want to know more, but for some reason, God and his omniscience has decided that that's not necessary for us. And so there are two things that this tells us about God's character. First was that God has given us all the knowledge that we need in Scripture. Second is that God is in control. This is called God's governance. He is in control. So he's not done with Paul. And since he's not done with Paul, God is going to protect him. You see, we see the opposite of this with Ananias and Sapphira back in Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, the church in Jerusalem was growing quickly, and the believers there, they were going and they, had, they were selling all of their possessions and bringing the proceeds to the church so that the church could distribute them to the believers who had need, and to others who had need. And Ananias and Sapphira come in. Well, they go and they sell, all their, they sell their house and they sell all their possessions, and they bring some of the profit into the church. And Peter asks, well, is this everything? And they say, well, Ananias says, well, yes, it is. Let me give you a little background detail here. Nobody in the church said that you had to sell everything. This was not an expectation, that's something that they had to do. This was just something that the believers there in the church were doing out of the love from the Holy Spirit. They were doing this in response to God's grace for them and God's um, amazing grace for them. And so they were selling everything they had. Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife, sold their house and they brought in some of the proceeds. Peter says, Is this everything? And Ananias says, why, yes, yes, this is everything. And boom, he drops dead right there. And so some of the disciples get Ananias' body and they take him out and bury him. And a, little bit, a little while later, Sapphira comes in and Peter says, well, is this everything that you sold your house for? And she says, why, yes, yes it is. And boom, she drops dead right there. Now see, we, the opposite is what's happening here. Paul is being protected by God instead of being punished by God. So he's being protected. Um, So those two, Ananias and Sapphira, were doing the opposite of Paul. See, Paul was willing to sacrifice everything for the glory of God. Ananias and Sapphira were only seeking their own glory. Now, I want to be very, very careful here. I don't want to imply that as long as you are following God's will, you will never be killed for your faith. We see throughout Scripture and throughout church history that that's not the case, right? Right? Let me me say that again. I want to be clear. I am not saying, I don't want to imply that as long as we are following God's will, that we will never be killed for our faith. All right? What I am saying is that God is in control. He does whatever is necessary in every situation to ultimately bring Him glory. God does what is necessary to bring Him glory. So how might believers being martyred bring glory to God? How might people being killed for their faith bring glory to God? What we've seen throughout history is that in the times and places where the church is most persecuted, is when the church is most tortured, those are the times and the places where the church grows the most. Those are the times when the church has the strongest testimony. More people come to faith by witnessing a bold proclamation of faith than they do when the church merely rolls by in comfort and complacency. And see because Paul knows that God is in control, he's able to maintain calm in this situation. You see when Jesus and the disciples they got into the boat to go across the sea and the storm came, Jesus panicked, didn't he? No, that's not what happened at all. Jesus was asleep. Jesus was able to rest because he knew that the boat was in God's hands. See, Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher said, "A storm where Christ is?" Yes. It is generally so. If all seems calm, you may question whether Christ is there. But when he goes into the boat and his disciples follow him, it is not remarkable that the devil comes after him. So when we are going through storms in our life, it may be just because we are there with Christ. And we have followed him into the storm and he is there protecting us. See, Paul recognizes that same truth and therefore undeterred by this current storm. So let's see what happens next. Picking up in verse 20, the Jews, he said, this is Paul's nephew, the Jews, he said, have agreed, to see, or have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow, as though they're going to hold a somewhat more careful inquiry about him. Don't let them persuade you, because there are more than 40 of them lying in ambush, men who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they have killed him. Now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the commander dismissed the young man and instructed him. Don't tell anyone that you have informed me about this. He summoned two of his centurions and said, Get 200 soldiers ready with 70 cavalry and 200 spearmen and go to Caesarea at nine tonight. He uh, also provided mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. He wrote the following letter. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. Greetings. When this man had been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned that he is a Roman citizen. Wanting to know the charge they were accusing him of, I brought him down before the Sanhedrin. I found that the accusations were concerning questions of their law and that there was no charge that merited death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there was a plot against the man, I sent him to you right away. I also ordered his accusers to state their case against him in your presence." So the soldiers took Paul during the night and brought him to Antipatris as they were ordered. The next day, they returned to the barracks, allowing the cavalry to go on with him. When these men entered Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. After he read it, he he asked what province he was from. And when he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing whenever your accusers also get here. He ordered that he be kept under guard in Herod's palace. So at the beginning of this message... I said that Luke juxtaposes two groups. We have the Jews and the Romans. And he places them side by side, knowing the Bible, we have an expectations or we have an expectation that the Jews are supposed to reflect God's character. They've been raised as God's people, they've been raised to follow the laws of Moses and to reflect God's character to the people around them. We also know that we should expect the Roman government to be corrupt and crooked. They're pagan. They have no Uh, no bearing of God's truth in their life. They have their own understanding of truth and justice. But what we see is that these two groups actually act in opposition to what we might think they should. The Jews have conspired to illegally kill Paul because they have assumed his guilt before a fair trial. The Romans, on the other hand, are protecting Paul and trying to give him a chance at a fair trial. And see, this also happens to be a regular complaint against the church nowadays, against the modern church. We're supposed to be people who reflect God's character and share His truth and His justice and His love for the community around us. But we hear stories all the time about corrupt church leaders or pastors who are unfaithful to their wives. We hear stories about pastors who are raking in millions of dollars while their neighbors are suffering in poverty. We hear stories about churches who use their view of holiness to persecute and ridicule those who are in the most need. While on the other side of the story, we hear about some really great charitable organizations who have no connection to the Bible, who have no connection to God. These are really good um, organizations, people like the Red Cross, who are doing really great charitable deeds, doing really good things, but not because... They're reflecting God's character because of their understanding of God. They're just doing really good things because they they see a need and they're meeting that need. See, it's the same thing that happened in Paul's time. When we call ourselves children of God, we should reflect his glory to our community. See, it's a lot like how the moon reflects the sun back to the earth. The moon doesn't give off its own light, but at night, if it's a full moon, we get a lot of light. We can see fairly well under a full moon. The moon's not giving off its own light. It's only reflecting the sun back to the earth. Similarly, when people are around us, they should see the light of the sun, Jesus, the sun, reflecting off of us and into their lives. So how do we reflect God's love and reflect God's glory into our community? Well, we have to ask ourselves, what was Jesus's character and mission? If we're reflecting Jesus to our community, what was his character and what was his mission? See, as Jesus went around, he spread truth, he cared for the hurting around him, he called out the sins of the self-righteous, he prioritized loving children. He his mission was to reconcile the relationship between God and humanity. Now, can we say that we as a church are doing the same things? Can we say that we as individual Christians are doing the same things? So if we're going to call ourselves Christians, then we should reflect Jesus' character to the world around us. Now don't get me wrong. The charitable organizations that are not connected to the church, the the charitable organizations that are not connected to biblical truth, they're not bad. They're doing good things. You see, often people will complain that they don't see any reason for the church. They can do just as much good for their community by supporting these other charitable organizations. And sometimes, if we're being honest, we have to say, okay, I, I see what you're saying there because the church, I'm not saying victory necessarily, but the church... Isn't doing a whole lot of good. But we have the greatest good that we can share. Not only the greatest motivation to do good in our community, that is Jesus' love for us, but we have the greatest good that we can share with them, and that is the gospel. That is that Jesus came to fix the brokenness in our lives, the brokenness that we caused because we rebel against God's will in our life. Jesus came to fix that brokenness. He came to take the punishment for our sins. And he died on the cross um, to take that punishment and to reconcile us with our creator. And through faith in that, then we can be reconciled with our creator and we can recover and pursue God's will in our life, God's design in our life. We as the church must recognize that it is our job to care for the lost and the needy around us. And we can offer more than any non-religious charity. We bring the gospel. And that is the greatest good that can be done, but not to the neglect of other good deeds. So we get to our application and we want to know how does this apply to our disciple making strategy or apply to our vision of worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. First is to know that God is in control whatever storm you're in right now, whatever storm that, that is rocking your boat, God is right there with you and he is in control and he is doing this to seek His glory. And when we seek His glory, then we are under His protection. We are under His love. The second is to be. Be the moon. Like I said earlier, the moon's job is to reflect the sun back to the earth. Our job is to reflect God's glory to the people around us. And finally, doing is to take the gospel to the lost and hurting around you. Share the gospel with the people around you. Help those in need, but not just to say that we filled their belly, but can we offer them spiritual filling as well? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, I thank you that you are there with us in our time of greatest need. God, I, I thank you that you are in the storm with us and that you are there and you have the power and the control over all of creation. Lord, I thank you for your wisdom and that you know all truth. Lord, I pray that you will help us to surrender to your knowledge, that you will help us to to surrender to your will, that you will help us to reflect your glory to the community around us, not only by meeting physical needs, but also by meeting the spiritual needs of those around us as well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we've come to our point of um, response, you can respond right there where you're seated. You can come to the front and pray at the cross, or you can come and pray with me. But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning.